Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. All right, welcome. Welcome to Ask or Tell Me Anything. Uh, we do this once every two weeks. I think we're actually sort of fairly religiously in that pattern now. Once every two weeks, there is no guest. There is only you and me. And the phone number, 888-720-WNPR. That's 888-720-9677. We already have our first call up on the board. Before we even get to the calls, though, I just wanted to quickly tell you some of you know, and we certainly made a big fuss about this on social media, but on Friday it occurred to me that we had never told anybody on the air about this. So I did mention it at the end of Friday's Nose episode. But um, And this was sort of months in the making. But a few months ago, Alec Baldwin got in touch with me. Alec Baldwin, the actor, uh, got in touch with me. And I already knew that he was a pretty regular listener to the show. And so he got in touch with me. I guess his people got in touch with me and said, well, he'd like you to be on his podcast, which is called Here's the Thing, which, like, he usually has, like, really famous people on. <laughs> In fact, he almost inevitably has really famous people on. Um, so, like, Ira Glass has been on Here's the Thing, but I'm just me, you know? Anyway, it didn't seem plausible. But then, you know, it's sort of weird, too, because then a, a couple of times he called. It's just weird when Alec Baldwin calls your phone. And I was, like, out in the yard one day, and he called... And my dog, Declan, picked that particular moment to go running off after one of the neighbors. I mean, in an enthusiastic way, but nonetheless. Um, so I'm, I'm like calling to him and running after him to catch him. And then Alec Baldwin goes, is your dog named Declan? <laughs> and I said, yes. He goes, great name. Um, I don't do a really good Alec Baldwin. But um, <laughs> so anyway, he did finally do this interview. Uh, and... Um, and I will say this also, people who do what I do for a living should periodically be interviewed because then you come to realize, I mean, it's always kind of in the back of my mind that I'm trying to control things when I'm interviewing somebody. I mean, you want the person you're interviewing to say all kinds of interesting things. Otherwise, what would be the point? But there is still kind of a control apparatus there, right? You can't, you can't help yourself. And so, you know, when somebody else interviews you, they are implicitly much more in control than I was. And I didn't, I found I didn't enjoy surrendering the, surrendering the control. And then afterwards I thought, oh, these weren't the things that I needed to say. And 
I got over it, but it took a while. Um, and I, st- <laughs> I still, I, I'm also very self-conscious about my show, and I, I don't listen to this show uh, very often. There are a few episodes that I can listen to, but I don't listen to it as a matter of course. And one night I was getting, my son and I were at a Japanese restaurant, and we we walked out and got in, I think, his car, and he turned the engine over, and the 9 o'clock rerun of the show came on. And without missing a beat, he just said, turn it off, right? And I said, yes. <laughs> and I thought, it's good to have a son who knows you. So I haven't actually heard this episode yet. But we did want to play you a little tiny clip of it. you know. And, but So once again, to remind you, the podcast is called Here's the Thing. And look for the podcast that's not with Asif Manvi. And that'll be me. Uh, all right. So here's Alec Baldwin uh, asking some guy some question. Of all the paths Colin McEnroe could have taken... I wondered how he found his way to public radio. Radio was never the plan. Um, <laughs> the plan was to be a writer. And what happened actually was in 1992, I was a newspaper columnist. And that was right around the time that Limbaugh and Hannity and all those people, they had taken over what was the vast wasteland of AM radio and turned it into a different kind of wasteland with the kind of show that they were doing. But they took the AM ban, which was almost useless at that point, and they, you know, they revived it. And I was interested in that. And I was offered an opportunity as a newspaper columnist to guest host on two different radio stations. And to my dismay, they both offered me jobs on the spot when I got off the air. I mean, I thought this was like a horrible industry full of bullies and morons. So it was disappointing to discover that I was a natural at it. You fit right in. Yeah. So anyway, if you're interested in, like you don't get enough of me already, <laughs> but if you're interested in more uh, and 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 also what, you know, revelations Alec Baldwin is able to pry out of me, it's called Here's the Thing. Yeah, check it. And check out the podcast on any podcast app. All right. Enough of that. The, our number today is 888-720-WNPR. Technically, it's our number every day. 888-720-9677. You may call up about anything. You may call up about, you know, very obscure things. You may call up with hot takes about the big story of the moment. We're not fussy. 888-720-WNPR. And here we go with our first call of the day. It's Eric from Cheshire. Hi, Eric. Hello. Hi. Uh, uh, oh, this is Eric. I, I just okay. Uh, Colin, am I on? Yes, you're absolutely okay. on, and you're also definitely Eric. Yes. Uh, happy Halloween, by the way. Happy Halloween, indeed. Thank you, uh, and that's the reason why I'm calling. I'm I'm calling to let you know that that Halloween is my favorite holiday, and to explain the reason why. Uh, I think that Halloween is is uh, the most fun and, and actually the most educational holiday that we celebrate. And, um, uh, you know, for example, uh, the uh, Halloween toys and decorative items sold in stores uh, create many opportunities for creative uh, ideas involving uh, the introducing introducing children to science. Uh, for example, uh, the plastic uh, human uh, skeletons, as well as those of some of the other animals, are actually quite uh, accurate anatomically. 
Uh, and also, uh, there are many electric and electronic toys and gadgets, uh, particularly robotic toys, uh, that could be disassembled uh, and uh, to explore their, their inner parts, like their motors, gears, and, and the other parts, and how those parts work uh, when the toy switches are turned on. Uh, add to that uh, the history of diseases like tuberculosis uh, and uh, the uh, witch trials uh, and the role of modern-day uh, witches uh, or, or the effort uh, by modern-day witches uh, to fight for uh, social justice. Uh, I, I think that would alone, all those things combined would be enough to, to create a Halloween studies course uh, <laughs> that, that could last at least one season. Uh, you know, and, and particularly uh, uh, relevant today, uh, I think, is the history of witches and, and of the witch trials uh, and and its association with the denigration of women and blacks uh, that we continue to see. Uh, and uh, as an example, I have um, uh, the uh, Saturday's issue of the New York Post, which is uh, a, a very right-wing uh, paper, has a political cartoon of... Uh, depicting Hillary Clinton as a witch, and and so uh, and, and of course the uh, you know we continue to to struggle with uh, civil rights and women's rights, especially. Right. Okay, so in, Eric, this is really interesting. Although I'm gonna, we're going to have to wrap up here because other people will want to get out. I don't know if I buy any of this though. I mean, to me, this is a holiday where kids go to your house. And they try to get candy, and sometimes they dress up, you know, in really interesting costumes. Sometimes they dress up in kind of boring costumes. I mean, I think if we instituted a new folkway, a new moray, you know, like the, you, the kid comes to your house and he can't have any candy unless he can tell you something about Maxwell's theory of electromagnetic fields, you know. And if they, if they, they, you know, they should have to answer some questions about the stuff that you're talking about. And if they don't know the answer, they don't get any candy. That's what's wrong with Halloween. The kids don't have to do anything other than dress up as Snoopy or something. And it seems to me that we're, we're I think now, Eric, because uh, your ideas are very interesting, you've kind of, you kind of led me into an, a, a new concept of Halloween, which is it should be way more transactional. Forget about trick or treat. Answer some questions. Answer some basic questions about science and history, and then you can have a candy bar. Um, all right. Let's move on here to uh, Dave in Lake Como, Ohio, uh, Ohio's beautiful uh, reproduction of uh, the Lake Como region in Italy. Um, hi, Dave. Colin, thanks for taking my call. You won't find that on a map anywhere. It's no, you got to know. You got to know. Keep it. Yeah. Yeah. Before I get to my topic very quickly, yeah, I listened to the Baldwin podcast and last week and beautiful. It was not only did you do you come off great, but he seemed to have really prepared for that. And what I did not notice until today when you played that clip was that he was really in his Glengarry Glenn Ross voice. It was like <laughs> disconcerting. 
Um, my comment is just, you know, these days when we have the cable news networks on, I really feel like throwing my beer bottle into the television the closer we get to this election. Um, it, it just seems like, it, never mind Fox, because we know what they're about at all times, but MSNBC, CNN, it just seems awfully apparent that they are uh, hell-bent to keep the election as close as possible. And what I just don't know is, are they unaware or do they not care how much this can actually move the needle? Yeah, I don't I don't know if it can move the needle. Um, and, and I don't think they necessarily are capable of keeping the election closed. They can put out information and people do what they want. I, I don't know. Here's what I would say. This isn't really entirely responsive to your point, but one thing that I've really been enjoying and will recommend to people right now is the Ezra Klein show, um, which I think is a New York Times podcast, but anyway, it's on yep. any, any podcast now. Like the last four episodes, he has done such interesting stuff about the election and about politics. And so his thing with Mark Leibovich was so great that we, I decided, OK, we're having Mark Leibovich on, too. He's, Mark Leibovich is going to be with us on, on Thursday. His new book is called Thank You for Your Servitude. It's about sort of how all of the people, uh, all of the Republicans who weren't Trumpers, the Kevin McCarthy's, became became Trumpers. Um, but you know, even the one that he's that's up right now that I've been listening to today, where he's talking about things like calcification and ways in which you know, like I, I actually wonder whether MSNBC and Fox News have the kind of radicalizing impact that maybe they did. You know, I don't know two or three electoral presidential cycles ago because there's so much other stuff that's just so much more directly injected into the vein. Like one of Klein's interesting points in, in, uh, in the most recent episode he did was that there's a way in which Trump, because he figured out a kind of rhetoric or without even figuring it out, he instinctively stumbled on a kind of rhetoric that would be algorithmically lifted, as Ezra says, uh, and become more potent in the world of social media. He basically rewrote the rulebook for being a Republican. Now, if you want to be a Republican of any consequence, you kind of have to do that. You have to sound a little bit like Trump uh, or maybe even a lot like Trump. And so I don't know, Dave, I'm wondering whether MSNBC and Fox News have been effectively bypassed uh, and and whether the transfer of information, attitudes and ideas to the extent that anybody left is persuaded. Persuadable, and I think the persuadable people are in a rather small bunch. Um, I just wonder if they're persuaded in other ways. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I think that there are. It's easy for you know when we think about this to to sort of conflate undecideds with uh, with independents. I think there are a lot more independents that than there are undecideds. But they're, 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 they don't seem to be polled as much as the Republicans and the Democrats are. I, I should have lumped pollsters in with my initial comment. I think it's, in, it's good for business for them, too, to keep it as close as possible to the very end. But where I'm seeing last thing here is what I'm seeing on MSNBC is not radicalizing the left. I mean, they're doing all they humanly can to make things look so grim for the Democrats these last few weeks. So that's what kind of got the hair standing up in the back of my neck. Thanks. Yeah. Well, thanks for your call. And um, yeah, I mean, in terms of, I don't know, I don't know if I agree about polls. I mean, one nice thing about polls is ultimately, I think this is still true. 
ultimately, the determining factor of a poll's value is, the, is its accuracy. And the only way that you know its accuracy and its accuracy over time is how often it gets things right. That's why I find 538's pollster rating matrix that they do really, really helpful and useful because that's the, um, you know, oh, I want to go back to, the, to another thing that Dave said too, which is that Pew has done a lot of research on independence. And I think this might have come up in one of the shows that we've done this year. Um, and, and one of the things they found is there are a lot of people who are unaffiliated voters, but they have a lean. In fact, most, I think Pew found that most so-called independent or unaffiliated voters have a lean. And they pretty predictably and consistently vote for one party or the other. That you know, they, they may not be affiliated, but their behavior is perhaps you know, more predictable and less persuadable than than any of us might like to think. Now, having said that, there absolutely are, in this climate of huge dissatisfaction, there actually are people who are maybe registered Republicans who just don't like the way things are right now and would vote for the Democrats if the Democrats could make a plausible case to them and, and vice versa as well. I don't know. Um, it's a weird election. <laughs> I can tell you that much. And I, I can tell you also, as somebody who's reported a lot on politics over the years. I mean, I covered my first legislative session in 1979. I'm finding this one very, very hard to understand. I mean, in Connecticut, I think I pretty well understand it. But I don't, although right now in the 5th District, I have no idea who will win that election. And usually by now, I would have some idea. Um, I think it's a strange election because of some of the valences that are out there and the ways in which the polls aren't maybe as reliable as they have been in the past. And I don't know. It's a, it's a hard one to figure out. On the last – no, yeah, no, I'll say one last thing and then we'll go to Lola and then to Arnold. Um, one thing that we've tried to do, and I don't think we've made a big deal about it or anything, but maybe we should have, is um, we decided on the Colin McEnroe show that we should do something in this political season. And we, you know – Lucy, God bless her, is the one who's interviewing all the candidates, which I don't really want to do very much. Uh, but we wanted to do some shows, and we've done shows about in, uh, about centrism. We've done shows about why things that poll very well as policies are not politically popular or often don't become policies, even though 65% of the American public wants them. I mean, we've sort of tried to do that kind of show. Uh, and and I hope that you've noticed that and enjoyed that and that sort of we're, we're going to veer away from politics pretty soon. But we, we sort of plunge back in and try to do a specific kind of show that that people I, I think would would enjoy and would be a little less like everything else. Although I have to once again say Ezra Klein is doing the same thing and maybe doing it a little bit better right now because he's a little bit smarter than I am. Uh, anyway, uh, here's Lola in Ellington. Hi, Lola. It's Lois, but oh. that's okay. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, it was, I just, that's all right. bad, bad reading. Uh, it, it's interesting that you should be talking about this conversation. I, I'm calling because I'm a re, uh, I'm a registrar of voters, and I wanted to give some hints for the Connecticut voters out there um, about what the next week looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, but in my in my previous life, I was the associate director at the Roper Center of Public Opinion Archives. I, I know you're familiar with them. She worked with Everett Ladd in the past, but. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I, I mean, I agree with you that no polling institute sets out with the um, idea of let's let's conduct a biased poll. I mean, you're not worth your spit if you if you're proven inaccurate and wrong. So everyone, I think, attempts to do the right thing and get the right data, and it is just a snapshot in time. So you know, you have to take that into consideration. 
Yes. I mean, can I just say one more thing about that? I mean, for that reason, Ann Seltzer uh, out there in Iowa is this incredibly revered and much studied figure, not because she's really good at dramatizing election results or any of that other kind of stuff or that she's for hire for some media company that, you know, wants to make a particular argument about the closeness of an election, but because she's just really, really good. And she's also managed to figure out how to do it without the kind of waiting, uh, W-E-I-G-H-T-I-N-G, that the other polls do. She's has such an, I mean, she's fascinating to listen to. But yeah, you know, it seems to me the only way that you are worth your spit, as you say, uh, is if you're good. Right. And let's remember, there's an element of science and an element of art in questionnaire design. So both both need to be um, monitored and done correctly. Um, Okay, getting on to Connecticut, what what I really called for um, as a registrar of a tiny town, uh, I just think it's important for folks in Connecticut to be aware that tomorrow, uh, it's a week before the general election, and every year a week before the general election, um, is the last day that you can register to vote. So all of the registrar's uh, offices are open until 8 p.m. So you can get out there and register to vote, vote and be ready to go uh, next Tuesday. Um, what happens then is the system is closed out so that, in the, in, so that we can prepare for the election. We can print our lists and all of that. And then on Election Day, which is November 8th this year, uh, folks can come to the town hall if they're not registered, and register to vote and vote right there at the town hall. So that's kind of what's going on mm-hmm. over the next week. And the other point that I wanted to make was our election officials that are working at all of the different polling locations have been trained. They take their jobs very seriously. Um, try not to give them a hard time. Uh, you know, I, I've been I've witnessed more than once people yelling and swearing and then throwing their license at the at the che- checker. I don't think that's that's appropriate. I think what we have to be thinking of is every person needs to be identified. We need some identification from you. The easiest thing and what the poll checkers are so used to seeing is your driver's license. So, yes, you don't have to give your driver's license. There are other forms of ID. But why not just do it? And move on. Yeah, no, I would agree. I mean, I I will say that, you know, because, in fact, this is a system of 169 towns, most of which have at least two registrars of voters, quality control is hard. And, of course, the people that they recruit, you know, from poll moderators and stuff like that, I mean, they have to they get them where they can. They often are from the ranks of retired people and stuff. And so I think quality is all over the map, you know, and I've had some really kind of bizarre and ridiculous situations at the polling place that I've been going to for the last 10 years or so, although I have a new polling place this year, that, I mean, that just struck me as very unnecessary. And But I didn't yell or scream or throw my license. But, but I mean, it just should have been way easier. And I shouldn't have been turned away. And a couple of times I was turned away when I knew I was there on the list. I just couldn't get them to look at it somehow. So... You know, right. I, I do feel, first of all, ultimately, this state is going to have election problems until we more fully centralize administration of elections. I think having 169 towns 
and and whatever two times that is in registrars, it's too much and it's too spotty and, and too many weird things happen. And it's like every year, I mean, think about 2018, to your point about election day registration, that was when New Haven like couldn't handle and it wasn't entirely their fault, but New Haven City Hall could not handle this incredible deluge uh, of people showing up to do elect- election day registration, which I think, Lois, you and I can join together and say, please register now if you possibly can. I mean, you know, it, it don't don't bet on election day registration because it, it can become a bottleneck exactly for that reason. So there's really no reason to wait for election day registration. So try to do it now if you possibly can. But, you know, that was like a real problem in terms of making sure everybody who wanted to vote got to vote. Now, you may recall in 2014, the voter rolls did not arrive particularly in a lot of key places in Connecticut. So dramatically, Dan Malloy and Denise Merrill, the Secretary of State at that time, and he was the governor at that time, showed up at the Hartford Seminary location where they both voted, and they couldn't vote. (laughs) Uh, I mean, the governor and the Secretary of State couldn't vote because the Hartford registrars had not gotten the voter rolls to the— I mean, you know, it's election day. It's not that hard, you know. (laughs) And and in 2010, as you recall, we had terrible, terrible problems in Bridgeport to a point where a judge had to keep the polls open for an extra hour because of all the problems with ballots there and the wrong kinds of ballots and stuff like that. You know, these sure. these are, I, I, th- I think Connecticut is not that big a state. We sh- I shouldn't be able to rattle off, you know, the voting crises that have happened on election days over the last 12 years. They shouldn't be so fresh in my mind. So I think we can do better. I think the state can do a lot better than it does. And, and I totally agree with you that all, every courtesy should be extended to the people working at the polls who are mainly there out of the goodness of their hearts. But this also should wait, wait, be a lot wait. better. Wait, wait. I, I think there's also something else. You're rattling off a number of them, and you're going back more than a decade. Mm-hmm. Um, in that decade, I mean, I was not part of the system in 2014. Uh, I believe I started in the fall of 18. But uh, what what's really happened in the period that you're talking about is registrars have been uh, certified, and we have gone through a major training, and it's a training in every level, and, and includes the laws specifically, so we can tell you which statute it is that requires this or that. And to to speak to your point about being uh, turned away, you're right. No one should ever be turned away. Uh, when a checker cannot find you on a list, there's a reason for that. Maybe you live uh, in a condo and your unit number wasn't listed properly and therefore you're somewhere else on the list. Right away, they should refer you to the assistant registrars who are running the show there and they will identify you. If for any reason they do not, you can still vote for federal office. There's a particular process in place for that. You get a provisional ballot, right? Exactly. Right. right. Hey, Lois, I, I have to break here. I don't mean to cut you off, but um, I'm way, way over the, the, the post here where I where I have to go to a break. Anyway, let's hope we have a very peaceable, calm and orderly election day in the state of Connecticut. And we will be back. Speaking of the devil, well, here I am. May I come Feeling like a lost and lonely land May I come in
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. All right, we are back. I get to pick up the pick out the music for the Ask or Tell Me Anything shows. That's why I let it play so long. <laughs> All right, so our number is 888-720-WNPR. Wayne, I'm sorry you hung up. I would, I'd talk to you about that topic. Call back, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Here we go with Arnold. Here's Arnold in New Haven. Hi, you're on the air. Or you're not I- on the air. There you are, there you are. Hello? Hi. Am I on now? You are certainly on now, and you are okay, definitely also Arnold. Yeah. Uh, thing about political debates, normally I can't stand them for all the reasons that you can probably imagine. But I recently realized um, that I knew nothing about the two candidates for probate judge in New Haven. I'd seen a lot of lawn signs, but I didn't really know anything about the candidates. So <clears throat> I discovered that they had held a debate on w, um, WNHH, uh, Paul Bass moderated, and I figured, well, let's find out something, let's watch the debate. And this is a pretty obscure office. It's important. It can have an effect on people's lives, but it doesn't get a lot of attention. And the debate was so much better than when you see people running for higher offices, you know, God, president or anything else, um, conducting a debate. They were clearly both candidates were engaged with the issues, um, the specific issues that come before the probate court. They'd been involved in them for a long time. They came across as intelligent, um, well-intentioned. They were courteous to each other and respectful to each other and to the moderator. No, no snarky one-liners, no talking over each other, no interrupting. 
the only thing they didn't really help me with was um, I still came away not knowing which of them to really vote for, but I came away thinking, gee, you know, here's two people, and I think I'd be, you know, I'd be okay with either one of them in this office. And I wish more elections were like that. So my question is, in your experience, which is much greater than mine, dealing with political events in Connecticut, is it your experience that the sort of a-hole quotient goes up as people run for higher offices? Or can you, is this just a fluke of, you know, these particular individuals? Or, you know, what would you have to say about this? First of all, I love the idea of an a-hole quotient. Uh, and <laughs> I, think, I think we should somehow or other trademark that and use it as a regular thing. Yeah, okay, I mean... Just, just give me a footnote. Right. No, definitely. This will be... Um, so... I think a lot of it, I, I, I don't want this to sound like a, a Valentine to Paul Bass, but I think a lot of it starts there, right? You have somebody right. like Paul who really knows the issues and knows the community uh, and who is uh, is going to ask good questions and set a certain kind of tone. Now, I didn't see this debate. I try never to miss a probate judge debate if I can possibly get a chance to watch it. But I didn't happen to see this one or listen to it. Um, but I just know without even having to that, that Paul – will be the starting place for the phenomenon that you're describing. Now, in terms of the a-hole quotient and whether it goes up, well, it kind of goes back to what I was saying to Dave from Lake Como before in the sense that I think that's especially true these days because so many things, in order to move any needle at all, have to register on social media. And and so how do you do that? Well, I mean, Trump's, Trump said, well, one way you do it is by having an a-hole quotient of 10 uh, or 13, if in the case of Spinal Tap, uh, or no, I guess they were 11. They were 11. Anyway, uh, you know, you just go as high as you can. <laughs> and, and you, but I don't think that's naturally the way things are. But but I do agree with you that I have a hunger for, you know, for those rare occasions where you'll see a debate where one candidate says, look, I've been running against Ben over here, you know, for five months now. And I, I can tell you that even though I think I'd be way better that, you know, you wouldn't get hurt uh, having him as your U.S. senator or whatever. You know, that just didn't really happen that often, even though no. I, I, I think they some of it is they're overcoached and overhandled. They're kind of told to go to go there, to go to the yep. most aggressive and combative and abrasive stance that they possibly can. So I don't know. I guess maybe there's more on the line. So you have more cooks yeah. in the kitchen and maybe that's yeah. it winds up can, being that way. Can, can I say something about how, you know, you referred to how Paul Bass handled it? And I think, you know, um, I think you're correct. Um, and when I watched the debate, one thing that struck me is that he wasn't coming across as like a traffic cop, you know, enforcing a strict three-minute limit on what people said. He never said, for example, the way they do on, national, on you know, national debates, you know, you've got three minutes, then you've got a minute and a half for rebuttal, and it's very structured. This whole thing was much less structured. I think he was trying to give the candidates equal time, mm -hmm. but he wasn't enforcing these sort of arbitrary limits as to, you know, okay, you've had your two minutes or three minutes, whatever, you're done. Um, and the thing is, you need rules. The, the less people trust each other, the more rules you need. Right. And I, I do want to say one and more so thing, I think which there is... was a certain level of trust here yes. that he was going to be a fair, you know, he was going to do a decent job, and the two candidates had the same attitude. Um, 
yeah, anyway, I'll, I'll stop there. No, I, uh, the one thing I will say, now that I've started thinking about this a little bit is, and this paw would be the antidote to that, what I'm about to describe, is, I mean, you know, really, you watch a lot of these network-hosted debates, and this goes back even to 88, when, you know, Bernie Shaw asked his famous question of Michael Dukakis, what if your wife Kitty were raped and murdered, and blah, 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 how would you think about it? That's a really terrible question. You know, and it's a gotcha kind of question. He shouldn't have asked the question. Um, but I, I think increasingly you see in debating contexts either the either the questioning panelists or the or the moderator, if there's just one moderator, they will often ask these kind of inflammatory gotcha kind of questions that almost sound like attack points by one campaign against another. And I don't see the necessity of that. And I think at the beginning of the process, it would be good if everybody agreed, what's the purpose of this debate? Why are we doing this debate? Uh, and and they kind of start there uh, and then see where that leads you. All right, we're going to go to Sherry in Columbia, who I think is going to uh, upset Lois. All right, and then we'll go to Wayne uh, from Newington. Wayne will not get cut off this time. Uh, so Sherry, you're on, you have the floor. Um, thank you. Um, I live in a very small town, obviously, uh, and most of the usually there is at least one poll worker who knows me, and I've lived here for forty some years. And I had an elderly friend who had uh, a stroke, and she insisted that she wanted a license to present to the uh, you know to the voters, voting people, to check that she was her and everybody knew her because she talked to everybody. And we had, at the time the, um, the DMV in Willimantic was close and we had to go all the way to Norwich to get her ID. Hmm. And it was ridiculous. Um, I'm willing to swear that I'm me and I don't think anybody's going to pretend that they're me. So, I always say, no, I won't present my license, and I swear that I'm me, and I vote. But people don't know that they can do that. And, you know, I you know, I don't think it's necessary to present ID. Well, typically, they'll, 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 they also will accept it's things a, like a piece of mail, you know, a couple of pieces of mail uh, sent I know, to but, you uh, without why should I, like Why should I even swear? Why should I even present? Proof that I'm me. Right. I mean, usually uh, there's at least one poll worker who knows me, and I've been here for 40 years. It's a form of voter suppression to, you know, have people present uh, ID. Right. You can swear that you're you, and people don't know that they you they can swear that they're you in in Connecticut. Right. And sometimes the poll workers don't seem fully briefed about all this. I'll, let me just say this. There's sort of a middle ground, you know. Um, that's why I mentioned the, you know, bring a couple of pieces of mail. Because, you know, I, we think of voter ID laws when we hear about them in Alabama or something as as ways of suppressing the vote, which is often what they are. Uh, so we, we don't want to have a voter ID law here in Connecticut. Now, our voter ID law in Connecticut is, and the regs that go with it, are very muddily written. Um, you kind of have to present an ID and you also kind of don't have to. Um, and and they probably should be clarified a little bit more than they have been in the past. But it's also you have to be kind of considerate of everybody around you. And I think the point Lois was making is let's keep the line moving. Let's not do any grandstanding here. Uh, if you've got a driver's license presented, if you don't have a driver's license, we'll figure something out. Um, but uh, and, and at least on one occasion, maybe twice, I think on one occasion, just to test the law, 
uh, I brought mail instead just to see what would happen. It was fine. Um, but, I, I, you know, I think you have to sort of think about, well, what's, what's, the, what's the greatest good? The greatest good, I think, is the line moves fast. Everybody gets to vote. You know, if you don't have a driver's license, they'll accept something else. But I don't know. Insisting on the right to swear to one's own identity seems to me to be kind of an unnecessary way of being a stick in the mud or, a, or something. Uh, stick in the mud is the wrong thing, but I'm 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 exhausted. I can't think of any more uh, cliches. <laughs> um, here's Wayne from Newington. Hi, Wayne. Oh, sorry. You know what? I I'm like sneak bit with Wayne. No matter what I do, I just can't get Wayne on the air. There he is. Hi, Wayne. Yeah. You're on the air. I'm on. Okay. So, Colin, I just wanted to ask you one more time. Have you even moved the needle a little bit on your idea of? You don't need to address the the idea of a civil war in this country. I think obviously some things are happening here. Uh, I think when I think about and when I think about a civil war, um, I suppose I mean I think the greater likelihood is that we're going to look at secessionist movements that we're going to see even more secessionist music movements than we already have. That that's going to be one kind of vector, and and I suppose you know given our previous. 19th century experience with secessionist movements. We see where the, how that can lead to civil war. And then there's another thing that's going on, and the <clears throat> latest manifestation of it would be Paul Pelosi. You know, there's something going on where violence has entered the political sphere, you know, dating at least back to January 6th, if not further, in a way that that I think, you know, it's on the verge of being normalized. There's almost this kind of sense, well, that's like what people do, right? They show up occasionally and try to kill politicians, uh, you know, or kidnap them or whatever. But, I mean, you sort of look at that and the Whitmer thing and Pelosi and and the Scalise shooting and stuff like that, and you just think there is something going on in this country that's not a civil war, but it's also not civil. Uh, and it's, you know, it's it's violent and it's scary, and and I don't know where that leads exactly, but I think we would be maybe more likely in a very dark scenario to have secessions and partitions and stuff like that than we would be to actually fight a civil war, if that's what you're talking about. So the how's that? The, tent, the, the thing you're talking about is the tentacles of like something that's more centralized. OK, right now, I believe that it's very disorganized as far as there's a lot of people out there who say the only way we're going to ever get our voice heard again is to do the violence. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. You know, I'm, I'm really getting to a sense of more and more and more someone or some entity or something wants to organize this violence into quote unquote, the civil war. They want one faction wants to go against the other so that another entity can rise to power. All this right. Is, yeah. This this is a this is the weird thing that kinda keeps keeps me up a little bit at night thinking about, wow, you know, wait a minute now, is this is this a thing? You know, is it is it is this something real or is this just something just like out of a Grisham novel or something? I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, it's there's certainly novels. Uh, um, probably Grisham <laughs> wouldn't be the best example of that. But um, one thing that I will tell you that you might find interesting, and I think I think it's being produced by Mike Pesca's company, uh, Peachfish. Uh, there's a new podcast debuting. It's called The Last Resort. 
uh, and the premise is what if California seceded from the United States and it kind of walks this through in a very I, I listened to like nine minutes of the trailer or something uh, this weekend and it sounded pretty interesting I, I probably I'm going to stay with it because you're certainly right that we are on a different terrain now than we've been in the past and the terrain is more divisive more polarized um, I'm not sure that enough people really participate in the more extreme versions of that terrain, uh, enough so that you would have a civil war. But I don't know. I, it, it bears more thinking about it. And I know Wayne's going to call up again in a month, so I better get my act together. Meanwhile, we better go to a break right now. We'll come back. We'll take as many of your calls as we can at 888-720-WNPR, 888-720-9677. I woke up, it was four in the morning, clear as all hell that you'd already gone. And we are back. Time to thank Cat Pastor, who is our technical producer. Jonathan McPants is up here. He is the producer of this episode. A little bit later in the week. Oh, tomorrow's show is about fog. It's about, about fog, fog. You know, fog out there. There's a fog upon L.A., that kind of thing. But also about brain fog and also about something called Fog Reveal, which is this kind of really scary data collection service that can be used by law enforcement in lieu of getting a warrant. Woo! Uh, anyway, that's uh, tomorrow. And then uh, I want to mention Thursday show, I think I already said, will be Mark Leibovich. I already mentioned that. And then we'll get the news on Friday. We're going to talk about Don't Worry, Darling. That's the movie where, I don't know, it's like bad things happen on the set. It was Olivia Wilde. And uh, I think, you know, uh, Florence Pugh was placed in, placed in a wicker frame and set on fire. I don't really know all the details, but it was like bad things happen. Um, nobody was set on fire. Don't worry. So uh, we're back. We're taking phone calls. 888-720-WNPR. Why don't we go first to Mike in Woodbury? Hi, Mike. How you doing, Colin? Just fine. Um, so, so my question is, when is this country going to enter the 21st century, even the 20th century, and have Election Day be on a weekend, like virtually every other country in the world? I mean, yesterday, Venezuela got rid of Bolsonaro, thank God, on, on, on a Sunday. Right. I mean, I think it would hugely increase. The, it probably would have been more important for Brazil to get rid of Bolsonaro, but <laughs> yeah, Venezuela, yeah. Brazil, whatever. Oh, Brazil, whatever. Um, but um, and so the reason it's on, a, it's on a Tuesday is I looked, I Googled it, and the answer stems from the agrarian makeup of 19th century America. In the 1800s, most citizens worked as farmers and lived far from their polling place. Since people often traveled at least a day to vote, lawmakers needed to allow a two-day window for Election Day. Weekends were impractical since most people spent Sundays in church, and Wednesday was market day for farmers. I mean, come on. I mean, like none of those things, uh, you know, exist anymore. So, well, oh, yeah? Have you, have you been to Winstead lately? I mean, actually, <laughs> your home of John Dankowski, for example, Winstead horses are allowed to vote because of that, because they've had to, usually had, they've had to carry some voter all the way to the voting place. And so they right. say the horse should be allowed to vote, too. Uh, right. That's a blue law I would take off the books. You know, I know what you're saying. I think the solution actually is just to have more, more election days, not one election day on a different day. But, I mean, I, I think there should be, you know, maybe vote from 
Wednesday to well, Saturday or Wednesday to well, through well, Sunday. That or something. was is this, that was yeah before before then states were allowed to hold elections anytime they pleased within a thirty four day period before the first week at Wednesday in December. That that was the law originally, and then they changed it to Tuesdays on in the first Tuesday in November. So, all right, well. No, it's not election day yet. Go. It's this is Wednesday anyway. There's a, now is the horse outside the studio right now. All right. So um, no, I agree. I mean, there should be more chances to vote, and that's you know obviously there will be an early voting question on the ballot in this election on November eighth here in Connecticut. Make sure that you take note of the fact that that question is there and vote for an answer. I think we all know what the answer ought to be. I think early voting. And, you know, there are a lot of states where they just have a much longer stretch of time where you vote. I mean, that's, there's sort of early voting, but there's also like I think some states where maybe it is five days, lots of voting or something. But uh, certainly, you know, all the things that I rattled off when talking to Lois earlier are an indication like what we ha- what happened in New Haven in 2018 would not happen if we didn't have just one election day. At least I, I think it wouldn't. So I'm in full agreement with you that we should do something with this. But. I think having one election day is kind of a mistake. Uh, all right. So uh, I don't know if I have time for Do I? What should I? I'll take. I'll, I'm, I may not be able to respond meaningfully. To, oh, but oh, oh, he hung up anyway. So so I think maybe what I'll do is I'll stop there because we're a little bit low on time. And I'll just quickly say a few things to you. First of all, just a, a quick reminder that, yeah, we have been trying to do a little bit more election coverage uh, this year because it's such an interesting cycle. And we will continue to do it. We're going to do – I don't think we know yet what we're doing on Monday yet. But on Tuesday, uh, what we on the Tuesday election, uh, November 8th, what we're going to do is something we do every cycle. We have what we call citizen observers. These are people we have asked to um, to go and vote before 1 o'clock and then tell us what the experience is like. You don't have to tell us who you voted for or anything like that. Just tell us how you felt, what it was like. We often ask people with artistic um, – uh, inclinations. Oh, yeah. And there was a caller that we had uh, um, a time or two ago, maybe a couple of times, named Iman. So um, and we like we really liked her. We thought she would be a good citizen observer. So Iman, if you're listening right now, uh, you should email Lily Tyson at L Tyson, L-T-Y-S-O-N at ctpublic.org because we would like to recruit you as a citizen observer. And I suppose now that I've blurted out the email address, anybody else who wants to uh, can can do that too because we, we actually could use a few. We've got some terrific people. Barry Blitt, the cartoonist, is going to uh, – uh, he's done it before, but he's going to – he's got, he does all those New Yorker covers and stuff. He's going to tell us about his voting experience and the wonderful sculptor Susan Clenard and uh, troubadour Lara Herskovich and all kinds of people. So uh, that's all coming. But uh, thanks for listening today. The number you have reached has been disconnected.